for us. Lord, help us to not count our lives in these moments as, as safe, as something we can hide away for ourselves, but help us to share, share freely with others, God. Lord, we pray that you will be the Lord of our lives. God, help us to hear your word now, God, and to put it into action. It's your name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning again. Thank you. I just have to brag on you. You guys do so much better than the 9 o'clock service. Thank you. I appreciate that. More fully awake, I think, maybe, part of it. Uh, we're starting a new series today, so if you want to open up your Bible to Mark chapter 1, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, it's page 836. If you want to follow along, there's Bibles under the pews there that you can grab. Page 836 in those black Bibles, Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're calling this series, Follow. What we're going to do uh, with this gospel is we're going to see Jesus and we're going to be then challenged to follow Him. Uh, to follow Him personally, that we would begin to change what we believe about ourselves and about the world, but also that we would actually follow Him and, and living differently as well. And so this is a great book. Mark is the shortest gospel. It's the fastest paced gospel. Um, it is the gospel that probably most clearly speaks to the Roman soldier of the first century, so I felt like that would uh, connect well at Fort Hood. Um, it's, it's got a quick tempo. Um, again and again, you'll see little catchwords like immediately. Immediately this happened. Immediately they went there. You'll see uh, Jesus speak very sternly. You'll see things like he sternly warned them. He strongly spoke. And, and so we have this, this quickness and this strength in the Gospel of Mark that, that makes it uh, an exciting uh, story to follow. Uh, you may or, or may not know this, but uh, all of the Gospels are giving us the same Jesus, uh, but they're writing them from different perspectives, right? They're, uh, the, the true stories of Jesus poured through different personalities. Uh, and what we understand is that Mark is the gospel uh, really written primarily by Peter. Mark was the one that wrote it down, but Mark was an assistant of Peter is kind of what we understand from church history and also from clues in the text that uh, in all the gospels, the disciples look stupid, right? And, and just as an aside, that's one of the ways that we know that they're authentic documents is that they're not, they're not trying to clean themselves up like other leaders of, you know, of a movement that would do in propaganda, uh, but they're just throwing out there the truth of, of what they looked like. And in the Gospel of Mark, Peter looks even more stupid than he does in the other Gospels. And so that kind of makes sense that this is, he's being honest, he's being forthright here, this is his Gospel. You know, the other Gospel writers were a little nicer to Peter, but since this is the one he's helping to write, he's, he's being a little more honest and forthright uh, about it. And we understand in church history that basically his preaching of the Gospel was then compiled by Mark and written down as a book then to, to put in people's hands. Um, I also want to help you understand this phrase that we see again and again, this, this idea of the gospel, right? You've, you've all heard that, that word before. Um, the word gospel is um, literally, that's a old English translation of a phrase that means the good news. So in Greek, it's euangelos. Uh, we sometimes transliterate that into evangel, right? You've heard the word evangelism. Have you ever heard that before? That's to gospelize someone, right? That's to share the good news. Uh, and so we've got all these different streams of words coming together. They're all just the same Greek word in the New Testament. 
Uh, so sometimes it's translated good tidings. Sometimes it's translated good news. Sometimes just gospel. Uh, in the Old English, it was good spell was kind of the way they were translating good news, good spell, and then it kind of got shortened down to gospel and then gospel. And so that's how we evolved into having this word gospel um, that kind of sounds like its own word in and of itself, but it means literally good news. And it was used often to describe the birth of a king or the new reign of a king who was bringing peace and order to the empire, right? As a matter of fact, that phraseology is used in an inscription about Augustus, right? He was the second emperor, the second one to, to rule over the Roman Empire. So I want to read real quickly. I know it's a little historical thing. You didn't come here for history, but Bible, but we're going to give you a little history here. Just a short paragraph. This is an inscription we found about Caesar Augustus. It says, Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. And it goes on and on. It's one of those you know, run-on sentence things. And a lot more to say, but we see this use of the word Savior and Gospel attributed to this God, as they called him, Augustus, right? Their understanding in that day was that their emperor was a son of the God and that he was seated at the right hand of the God. Does that sound familiar, right? The same language we now have uh, understood to be true of Jesus, Right? We've got contrasting gospels, contrasting good news, contrasting emperors. And Mark is saying Jesus is the real emperor. Jesus is the real good news. And he's going to be challenging us to follow him. Now, I know some of you are still questioning. You're still not sure. You're still convinced maybe, uh, maybe some modern philosopher is the one that really knows what's going on. Right? Maybe it's education. Maybe money is really going to be your savior. Uh, maybe comfort. Maybe some politician. But the Gospel of Mark is going to challenge you that no, Jesus is really what you're looking for. He's really the one that's going to set things in order, as I talked about Augustus. He's really the one that's going to bring peace to your life. So let's read Mark 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. It says, The beginning of the Gospel, or good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. God, help us to see you. Help us to understand the truth. We pray that your word would change our hearts as we begin to follow you in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that your spirit would, would meet us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a, a pretty famous executive who was uh, a leader of several companies in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. His name was Eli Black. Um, and Eli Black was a brilliant businessman. Uh, he was probably most famous for masterminding this multi-million dollar takeover of the United Fruit Conglomerate. which was this huge company. He was a really intense leader. And in a book called The American Company, uh, someone described meeting him for the first time. An executive had a business lunch with Eli Black, and the waitress brought a plate of cheese and crackers as an appetizer for them. Black reached out and took the the cheese and crackers and placed them on the table, and then he blocked them with his arms and began eating off of the plate as the other executive looked on. And the other executive had uh, let him know that he hadn't eaten for hours and was quite hungry, but Eli Black just acted like he didn't hear him. And kept eating the uh, appetizer off of the plate. So this went on for a while, and then Eli Black took uh, some cracker or a cracker and put some cheese on it and just kind of dangled it on his finger for a while while he was talking to the executive and continued to block the plate. Eventually, he set the cracker on the executive's plate, finally letting him have one, but continuing to block the rest of the, the, uh, the plate. And, and this executive shares it as a story of how kind of bizarre and controlling this man was. From a distance, he seemed like a great leader, right? From a distance, he'd done these great things. He'd run these huge companies. But when this executive actually met him and had lunch with him, he was strange, right? He was controlling, maybe not the kind of executive, not the kind of leader that you would choose to follow. Actually, in uh, 1975... Black was undergoing an investigation from the Securities and Exchange Commission. He went to his office on the 44th floor of the Pan Am building in Manhattan, and at about 8 a.m. he broke the window in his office with his briefcase and uh, jumped out, falling to his death on uh, Park Avenue in front of horrified motorists below. If you've seen the movie Hudsucker Proxy, it's kind of a weird movie from the early 90s. That first scene of that movie actually was based on his life. But Eli Black was really died a tragic death and was a broken man and was not the kind of leader that people really would want to follow. From a distance he appeared to be, but as you got closer, as you got to know him, as you shared lunch with him, people would change their mind. He wasn't the kind of person they wanted to follow. And what we're going to see in the gospel of Jesus Christ is we're going to be invited in to get closer to this Jesus. We're going to be invited into this great leader who's the most famous man that ever lived. Many people reject him from a distance, but as you get closer, I believe you're going to be drawn in 
You're going to be more amazed at who He is as we see Him, as we understand who He is, as we see how He walked, and we see the things He said. We're going to be amazed that He is different. He's not like anybody else, and He is going to be someone that we're going to want to follow. And so I'm excited about the next few months as we work through the Gospel of Mark and begin being challenged by who Jesus really was, how He showed Himself to the disciples and to the world, and being kind of swept up in that ourselves. We're going to be challenged to to follow Him. And I think in just these first few verses, we're going to see a, a few different reasons to follow Him. And the first thing I think we see is that we should follow Jesus because He was planned, right? He, he wasn't an accident. This wasn't just like, he just didn't stumble onto the scene and, oh, hey, I think maybe I'm the Son of God. But he was, he was planned from eternity past. We have the Old Testament Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, this is my gospel, that, that Jesus came according to the Scriptures, right? According to the ancient writings. It wasn't an accident, but it was planned. It was predicted. It was promised. And that's the promise that we have in Jesus. It's, it's written about this way in the first few verses. I'm going to read those again. It says, in the beginning, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Right? Isaiah was written hundreds and hundreds of years before. Um, if you're not sure about was Jesus really predicted, you need to just spend some time in Isaiah. It is amazing. These scriptures, these prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Christ that so clearly promise Him. And here's just one of these promises. This is from Isaiah 43. The author actually combines this with Malachi 3.1. The New Testament authors often do this. They'll kind of collapse multiple texts uh, from the Old Testament together. And that's what they're doing here. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Another aside, if you have people knocking on your door and questioning uh, the identity of Jesus and who he was, if you go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, if you go back to Malachi 3, 1, to read uh, where he got these quotes from, he's talking about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He's identifying Jesus with Yahweh. And now John the Baptist is the messenger that's preparing the way for the Lord, right? In the Old Testament, when it's all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the personal covenantal God of the Old Testament. And, And Jesus is being identified with that Lord. The way is being prepared for the Lord to come into our lives by John the Baptist. He's the one preparing the way. And this is how he does it. Verse 4 says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this was a a baptism, a, a ceremonial washing in which people were rejecting their Jewish heritage. Right at, at the time, if you wanted to join Judaism, one of the ways that you did that, besides getting circumcised and basically becoming a Jew, even if you didn't grow up as a Jew, right? if you were a, a Greek or, or Syrian or something else, you would, you would basically have to outwardly become a Jew and follow the law. And they would also often be baptized. They'd go through a ceremonial washing to be initiated into Judaism, just like we would do in the church. Right? We go through the ceremonial washing today as Christians as well. And it's a sign that were saying, I'm dirty. I need to be washed. It's also a sign of death and new life. And what's really amazing when you look at this is that this is a rejection of their status as Jews. John is saying, it's not good enough anymore for you to be Jews. 
See, this, this washing that Jews would often demand of outsiders, of non-Jews, before they could come in to the Jewish religion, John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Lord by saying, your Jewishness is not enough. You need to be washed. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins, that you're not okay by just being born as a son of Abraham. We get this in more detail in Luke chapter 4 when we hear more of the words of John the Baptist there. But he makes it very clear. Don't say that you're a son of Abraham. That's not enough. John the Baptist says there's an axe ready to chop the tree down, the tree of Israel. This axe of judgment is coming. It's not enough. One of the reasons that we practice believer's baptism is because we see it as a rejection of the way you were born and an acceptance of the new life that you need in Christ. Now, at our church, you don't have to be re-baptized to be a member of our church. We basically say if you consider this home and you're believing in Jesus, that's, that's fine. We would encourage you to be baptized. But, but one of the theological reasons we, we don't uh, practice baby baptism but practice uh, believer's or adult baptism is because we see this pattern that the Jews were being told it's not good enough to be born into the right family. You have to choose for yourself to repent. If, say, my heritage is not enough. The way I was raised was not enough. Myself was not enough. Whether you're a sinner and a rebel or you're a really good person. He's saying this to the really good Jews as well. My righteousness is not enough to save me. My sin is not going to save me. Neither one, right? I know we're, we're a mixed crowd and, and on different days we, we kind of slip into one of those roles or another. Often, sometimes we're both. Many of us are rebels, just saying, I'm going to try anything that makes me feel good. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I, I want to try to find health and, and life and fun. And often that's kind of what we think of the stereotypical sinner, right? The rebel running away from God. He's saying, repent, confess your sin, trust in God, don't trust in yourself, right? But he says it to the religious people as well. Those of us that are religious, I tithe, I'm going to Sunday school, I'm attending church, I'm doing all these ministries. He's saying, that's not enough either. Again, you have to repent and trust in God and not trust in your own good works even. But trust in Him. The good works we do, the great things we do, are a result of Him changing our heart. And that's what we have here. So we've got this warning from John. John saying, watch out, repent, He's coming back. And this this feeling of, of, oh no, He's coming, it reminded me of a story from when I was a kid I wanted to share with you. I've got a picture of a blue station wagon here, which I know... Probably doesn't make sense unless I, I share the story, but my, uh, my buddy, when I was about 14, his parents had a blue station wagon. Um, and his parents were gone somewhere. We were hanging around the house, up to no good. Uh, this was back when I was a pagan, right? And, uh, and so he says, well, why don't we take the car out for a spin? And for those of you that aren't from Texas, you're not supposed to go driving when you're 14, okay? So I know you think we do it that way, but we actually have laws. You can't do it that way. And, and so we went out in his car, and we start driving around the block in the little blue station wagon. And, and as we're driving down the main street of his neighborhood, uh, his parents start driving home. And we see his parents. And it was nuts because my, my friend was like, you know, he's driving. He's like, duck down so they won't see you. So we're, we're like ducking behind the dashboard thinking they're not going to recognize their car coming down their street. For some reason, we went to my house and I had like some Christian tape. And he's like, Here, I'll take this Christian tape and tell him I was borrowing a Christian tape. And then maybe I won't get in trouble, which didn't, it didn't really work. He, he got in trouble. Anyway, but, but that moment was that, that was that, oh no, we're caught moment, right? That was what we were experiencing in that moment. Driving down that street, he saw us. If we really believed that they were planning on coming at that moment, we wouldn't have been there at that time, right? 
John the Baptist is saying, here's the plan. He's coming. Get ready. Okay? And, and that speaks not only in the first century, but that speaks to us today. Are you ready? If Jesus were to come walking down the street, would you be ready? And the scriptures say that the way that you prepare to meet God is not saying, again, I'm a Jew, I'm good enough, I've got the right heritage, I'm a Christian, I went to church, I grew up in America, you know, whatever we might say, I'm a good person, I do these things. That's not how you prepare. The way you prepare to meet God is by repenting. It says confessing your sins, saying it's not enough. I need to be cleaned. I need to start all over again. I need God to save me. That's how you prepare. In our mission statement, we've tried to align it with the name of our church. Trust grace. Submit to the Bible. Be the church. And so this is that first step. You have to trust in God's grace. What you've done is not enough. What I've done is not enough. Being a good person is not enough. Being a nice guy is, is not enough. Having a great job, being someone respected at work, none of those things are enough. You have to trust in God's grace, that He's gracious to you, that He will save you based on what He's done, not what we have done. The next thing that we see is that we should follow Jesus because He's mighty. Because He's it, right? He's the man. We see this in verses 6 through 11. Look at this with me. Verses 6 through 11. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, all the accounts we have of John is that he was just a stud, right? He was, he was this tough guy. He was, he was a scary guy, right? Like uh, the other night, there were some bikers with a lot of leather, and we were, we were out and with my, my kids and uh, my father-in-law, and he was like, you know, don't look at those guys. Don't look at, you know, and that, that's kind of what John the Baptist was like, right? He's wearing this, this camel hair thing, and like he's got a leather belt, and I'm thinking, I'm imagining like this hairy chest hanging out, and he's just this rough prophet, this wild man eating locusts and honey that lives out in the desert. People are having to come out to him. Um, Jesus says that this one other, this other place, that there's like no greater man born among women than John, you know, up to that time. So, I mean, he was, he was this great man. He was this scary prophet sort of character. But, but listen to what he says about Jesus. This is this great man. In verse 7, he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's a contrast, right? So Jesus says He's the greatest man that's lived, right? Up until that point. And then John says, I'm not even worthy to untie His sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie His sandals. He is mightier than I. And that's, this is then displayed for everyone to see when the heavens are torn open uh, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The voice of the invisible God, the Father, speaks. This is my beloved Son. In Him, I am well pleased. We see the, the Trinity working together there, right? Our understanding is one God, but three persons. One what, but three who's. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all together there in that place for us to see in this, in this visual way. And it's a testimony that Jesus is mighty. 
He's greater than anything else and we should follow Him if for no other reason than that, right? Zephaniah 3.17 promises that the Lord our God is mighty to save. And He loves us and He quiets us with His love and He sings over us and He is gracious and kind, but He is mighty to save. He is strong. John the Baptist uh, contrasts their baptisms, right? John the Baptist's baptism is this ceremonial washing, right? It's this ceremonially saying in front of everybody, hey, I've got to be cleaned. I have a, I have a picture here of, of soap and water. And so John is saying, you know what? I'm, I'm washing you with water, but someone's coming that's going to wash you with the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm plunging you into water, but someone's coming that's going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit of God. He is going to transform you from the inside out. And this is so important for us to understand as followers of Christ that it's not enough for us to just clean up the outside. So often as religious people, we think, well, I can just look better, right? I can just put on the smile and act like everything's okay at church and, and that'll be good. Well, no, that's not what we're calling you to. We're calling you to follow Jesus and to be transformed from the inside out, that your hearts would be changed. If I just look good, that's a waste of time. But if the Holy Spirit invades my life, begins to upset my life, baptizes me, transforms me, then I'll begin to live in a new way. And that's the promise that we have in the Gospel. If you look at Galatians 5.22, uh, we see some of the marks of the Holy Spirit working in our life. I didn't do my uh, paperclip trick this time. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says it like this. This is what the Spirit does to us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He's, John the Baptist is saying, we might be able to clean up your outside, but only Jesus ultimately can clean up your inside. Only following Him can transform you from the inside out. This Holy Spirit comes into your life and transforms you. And the New Testament says the marks of that are a change of character, a change of desires. And so a question to ask yourself is not, uh, when did I walk the aisle, and, and when did I do this, and when did I get baptized, and how many years have I been a member, or how much money have I tithed? Or th- those aren't the questions to, to ask. Those, those are good things, right? Those are good things, but really the hard questions are, do, do I love people? Right? Is there any joy in my life? Am, am I kind? Am I faithful? Am I, am I gentle? Am I patient? Against such things, there's, there's no law. And, and as the Holy Spirit begins to invade our life, those things will begin to take root. Now, I'm not saying perfect all the time, right? We, we all fail these things. But that's what we should be struggling against. Not how we look, not what people see, what car we drive, what job we have, not the external appearance. We're not cleaning up the outside, but we're inviting the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. That, that's our desire. That's what we want to see happen. One of our, uh, the second step of our mission statement is submit to the Bible, right? That you would trust in grace and then that we would submit to the Bible. That we would start actually living out what it demands. And that's what we mean. We mean the Holy Spirit transforming you so that you would want to live in alignment with God's law. Uh, Jesus accused the Pharisees, who are also Bible people, 
He said, you know what? You're tithing mint and dill and cumin, but you're missing the weightier things of the law. You're missing love and justice and mercy. So there is a way that you can submit to the Bible and it's all for show. You're just a religious person. You're just trying to be seen. You're going to your 15 Bible studies to impress other religious people, but you're not really helping anybody. You're not really making any difference in the world. Jesus says, no, I want you to actually obey, submit to the heart of the Bible. I want you to actually love people. I want you to actually live differently. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And that's what we've tried to be careful to communicate in this mission statement is that you can't really submit to the Bible apart from trusting grace. You can't really submit to the Bible apart from the Holy Spirit's transformation of your life. Because otherwise it's just dead works. One of the other marks of the Holy Spirit is in Romans 8.15. It causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. That's another promise, right? Are you calling out to Him? And so, in our successes, are you loving? Are you kind? Are you gentle? Do you have joy in your life? But also in your failures when you stumble, because we all do. We all fail to live up to that the way that we would like. Do you have this calling out to your Abba Father who loves you, right? Who's better than the best dads we've ever had? And of course is perfect in comparison or contrast to these dads that have failed us, that haven't been good dads. He is, he's the perfect daddy. In your moments of struggle, in your moments of weakness, do you call out to that Abba Father? Another sign of the Holy Spirit baptizing you, transforming you from the inside out. The last thing that, or last reason that we should follow Jesus is because He passed the test. And this is a theological concept that's very important that um, I want to try to show to you. We're not really importing on the text, but I'll just kind of throw out the theological idea first, and we'll read the text. The theological idea is that not only do we have um, salvation in Jesus because He paid for our sins, right? That would be the He cleared our debt, right? We owe a debt because we're sinners, and Jesus died for our sins, and so He's punished instead of us. And that's what we hear most often uh, as the cross is explained. But also, He's credited our account with His perfect life. So there's these two sides of the gospel. He's a substitute, substitute in that He was a substitute taking uh, God's wrath upon Himself, but He also gives us His perfect life so that we also receive God's joy and blessing. So that when God looks, as a, looks at us, He sees us as His perfectly delightful Son, right? Jesus Himself, who's lived this perfect life. So both sides of that are important, right? Our sins have not just been washed away, and then we start sinning again, and oh man, that's terrible. But our sins have been washed away, and He's credited our account. So that when God looks at us through Christ, through our adoption in Him, He sees us as righteous. Okay, so that's the theological idea. Let's look at the text here, verses 12 through 15. And try to show you how we get this out of the text. This is another one of those things that that we pick up on from references from the other Gospels as well, but I think it's clear here also. Verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Well, first of all, we'll back up to the last section. Sorry. Verse 11, the voice from God says, This is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. Right? So He's already perfectly pleased. And then now we see Him passing the test. Verse 12, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is literally threw him out. Okay? Ekbalo. He just grabbed him and threw him out. Verse 13, And when he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted or tested by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's saying, it's, here it is. The time is now. The time is fulfilled. I've done it. And this is right after he's been thrown out by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, and he's been tested by Satan. So this is referencing a couple of ideas. Really, this idea is seen multiple times in the Old Testament. But a couple of key places, right? Uh, God's people wandering in the desert. Did they pass the test or fail the test? Y'all know? They, they failed the test, okay? Forty years in the wilderness, they failed the test. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness, he passes the test, right? And it also says being tested by Satan. What does that remind us of? And we see better echoes of this in the book of Matthew, but it also reminds us of Adam and Eve being tested, right? Adam and Eve were tempted. They were tested. And did they fail the test or pass the test? They failed the test, but Jesus passes the test. And so the active obedience of Christ on our behalf, that He lived perfectly, is a very important idea in Scripture. Because all of us fail. None of us live perfectly. None of us love and have joy and are are perfect all the time. And so we're resting not just that God has forgiven us that, but we're resting on the idea that He gives us Jesus' perfect righteousness. That Jesus is better than the Israelites who rebelled. Jesus is better than Adam and Eve who failed, right? He's everything that we were supposed to be. So when God looks at us, He is pleased. And so then we begin to live, we actually begin to live a life that's pleasing to God based on the reality that He's already pleased with us through what Jesus has accomplished for us. I had a picture here of some uh, firemen working out. I was thinking about this idea of passing the test because I know uh, we had some friends that just went through the police academy recently and I know they do this in the fire academy as well. You've got to pass a test, right, to become this kind of hero, right? If you're going to rescue people, they want you to be able to rescue people. That's an important part of it, right? I mean, how would you feel if the city of Colleen, the city of Harker Heights, or Cove said, you know what, we decided we're not going to pass the test anymore. We just want people that are nice. You know, we're looking for cops, we're looking for firemen that are just nice guys. And if they're nice, then they're on the team, okay? doesn't really matter if they're strong enough or fast enough or if they can shoot a gun or carry a fire hose. We don't care. We just want nice people. That, that would make you scared, wouldn't it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't feel like you could entrust yourself to their protection or to their help. And the story of, of the Bible is, is not that Jesus was just nice, right? A lot of times we have these pictures of him with the pink robe holding the lamb and... I mean, it's good that he's nice, right? We want him to be nice, but he's tough too, right? I mean, he's passed the test. He's, he's strong. He was, he was a stone cutter, a tecton, right? We always think carpenter like he was always you know, like whittling little statues. That was a stone cutter, okay? He was a builder. He, he, was, he was strong physically, but he also spiritually, he passed the test. He was the one that, that was everything that we failed to be. And by faith... We can trust in Him and be seen as that same success, be seen as that same child that pleases the Father. The the final step of our uh, mission statement is that we would be the church, right? We trust in God's grace. We begin to submit to the Bible out of that trust and that we would be the church. And we can only be the church because Jesus was the church first for us, right? We can only be God's people because Jesus was God's people. He passed the test. He succeeded. 
And he credits us with that so that God is pleased with us and then our hearts are transformed and we begin to live fresh. We begin to live new. We begin to walk in newness based on, by faith, what Jesus has done for us. Two things I want to encourage you to to do practically as you try to be the church, right? One is that you would get involved in, in fellowship, that you would be the church in a membership sense, right, of community, that you would belong one to another, Okay, and uh, this church is big enough, and we're spread over three services, so that you can walk in here and be not and not be known, right? And we we try to bring community into just the service, but really, what we want you to do is get to know each other at a deeper level than that. We we offer classes, we offer home groups, we encourage you to to go to lunch with each other, but we want you to get to know each other in community. The New Testament word is fellowship, right? I always hesitate to say fellowship because for all folks, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, that that just means potluck and ice cream, right? It's more than that, right? It's it's the person you can call at two o'clock in the morning when when everything's falling apart. And we need, you to, we need you to begin to build those kinds of relationships and we'll, we'll continue from the top down to give you those opportunities, right? We'll say try this class and try this home group. But we also need you to seek it, right? We need you to pursue that. As you try to follow Christ, follow Christ in community. And then the other thing is follow Christ in service. Our memory verse this week is deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Him, right? The last song that we sang was rise, people of love, give yourself away. And that is the call of Christians, that we would give ourselves away. And for some of you, that looks like giving yourself away for Christ's sake in your job, in your neighborhood. For some of you, you're looking for more tangible opportunities. We're giving you opportunities to serve in the church and the organized ministries. For some of you, you're entrepreneurial. You're coming up with ministries we haven't even thought up yet, right? And we're going to try to equip you in those things. But you need to find a place to belong, to have fellowship and, and love one another, and you need to find a place to serve, to give yourself away. That's what it means to be the church, based on what Jesus was for us. Well, I want to close, as we think about this idea of follow, I want to close with a little quote I found in a, uh, online from a book called None of These Diseases. It was a story about a woman that was applying to, to college, And it says that her heart sank when she read this question on the application blank that said, Are you a leader? And her heart sank because she was both honest and conscientious, and so she wrote, No, I'm not. I'm not a leader. She returned the application and was kind of expecting to be rejected. But she got this letter from the college a few weeks later. It says, Dear Applicant, A study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. And so her her honesty was blessed, right? And for many of you, you may feel weak. You may feel like you, you're, you're not there. And I want to encourage you to be honest. That, that's part of, again, the beauty of Mark. It's, it's the most rugged gospel. Uh, it's the most poorly worded in the sense of, of you can tell it wasn't really written by educated people. It's just simple and it's quick. And it just gives this inside look at who Jesus was. And it invites us in, even though we've all failed, to follow in the footsteps of Peter, who we'll see fail. And he says, come on, follow Jesus, because he's the one that will not let you down. He's the one who said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And the invitation for us is to follow that same Jesus. Let me pray for us. 
God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to transform us, that your Holy Spirit would baptize us, that we would be plunged into you. And God, it's scary because we want to keep control. But we trust you. We trust that you're good. We trust that you really are God and you know what you're doing and that you're able to change us for the good in a way that honors you, glorifies you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I'd I'd love to answer any questions if you have any uh, about what we talked about today or if you're new, I would love to meet you as well. I'll be up, up here up front. You may be dismissed. Thank you.